0: Apparently my bit um, is that I put otter images up on screen And you'll notice there's no otters um, This is because I have a daughter now um, So time compresses <laughs> when you have a kid um, But um, my wife wanted me to work Blue Planet in She's quite obsessed with Blue Planet at the moment And so um, there's some otters in Blue Planet Which apparently you should watch So I, I, I got them all in there um, Brilliant <laughs> um, me and Scott uh, sometimes have um, conversations about um, what's communicated um, in churches, um, and we we kind of come at it from, from these two opposite directions. Um, and and often I'll come in and I'll um, I'll be saying, "Ah, oh, but like we're not preaching Christ as King. We're not preaching the glory of God. We're not preaching like just the grandeur and glory of God." And and he'll say, "Yeah, but." Um, like, we don't want to go too hard down that route and ignore um, the Jesus who's social. Um, and, and I come back and I say, we're doing the Jesus that's social a lot. Um, like, it's really important, but also if we don't get the other side of Jesus, um, that dilutes his message. If we don't understand the Christ the King thing, then Christ the Man doesn't make sense. Um, and he'll come back and, and we'll kind of, go, kind of go back and forth Um, on this a little bit, Um, but what actually happens is um, when Scotty gets up um, to preach social justice, to preach Jesus the man, um, he winds up talking about Christ the King. He winds up talking about um, seeing the glory of God um, in each other and in Jesus the man, and the ascended Christ. And when I get up to talk and rant um, about God, the glorious God, the author of creation, this amazing, powerful, glorious being, I end up ranting about social justice. <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of want to explore that a little bit as, as we come to this thing of Christ the King, as we come to this feast, feast day. This is, this is the culmination of our entire liturgical calendar. Um, I want to explore... Christ the King and Christ the Man and Christ the Judge. And how, if we don't get all of that, um, if we don't unpack Scripture in light of all of that, um, we kind of miss some stuff. Um, Here we go. So, um, where the hell did this feast come from, anyway? It's actually pretty new in terms of liturgical stuff. Pretty new. Um, So what happened was, uh, after World War I... um, Italy and the Pope were kind of having a bit of a beef about land and um, who ruled the world. Um, and um, the, the Pope had kind of been kind of relegated to the Vatican. Um, and, and there was a lot of, I guess, talk about um, nationalism and about sovereignty. And, and the Church um, was kind of in this little no man's land. But they, they kind of hadn't been told before, at least in Italy, um, this isn't. This isn't your land. Like, God's not in control of what's here. The king, the king does that. Um, and so uh, Pope Pius XI um, sent out a letter. Um, it's called a circulatory. It's a little bit like a zine for like Catholic bishops. <laughs> um, and, and so I can just imagine like, him there photocopying and like cartooning. Um, but he sent out this letter. Um, and, and in that letter... Um, He laid out um, this thing called the the Feast of Christ the King. He said it's it's desperately important um, that we remind our nations that until they bring themselves under Christ the King, they're not going to have peace. They're not going to experience that. And so it it was a time set aside um, for like a whole day of Eucharistic praise and worship. Like this, (laughs) it's a whole day. Um, which I assume some of us next year will definitely be engaging in. Yes? Woo! Woo! Yeah. So Christ the King, um, reigning in glory. And, and the, the scripture that we choose for Christ the King reigning in glory is, is quite a contentious scripture. Um, this is just a section from the middle of it. I'm just going to read it. Um, um, from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this is a, a parable that, that happens. Well, it's, it's more of an apocalyptic parable. Um, tale, um, that happens uh, a little bit after the verse um, Rose spoke on, which was um, the, the virgins um, and the, the light stands and the oil, um, which, which was two weeks two weeks ago, yeah, yeah roughly, give or take. Um, there's also the parable of the talents in the middle, but we skip that. Um, but here we go. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell to you, whatever you did to the one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Apart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison? they like run-on sentences. Um, And we did not help you. And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous, to eternal life. What a full-on verse. <laughs> Such a full-on verse. Oh my goodness. Um, this is, this is a, a verse that's firmly seated in this realm of eschatology, which is which is the study of the theology of what happens when we die, what what, what happens at the end, what happens... Um, it, it's kind of in the, a genre called um, the apocalypse. Um, so pretty heavy, right? <laughs> like when we're looking at this... This stuff, it kind of sits in this big canon of stuff that's about, what the hell happens when we die? It's also one of the most intensely debated passages of scripture, um, because there are, there are so many interpretations, it, it seems very specific for something that is also super broad. Um, and it and kind of, it deals with these core questions that, that we kind of feel like we need to know, who's in, who's out, who are the least, who are the sheep, who are the goats, like there's a lot of different interpretations that people bring to this. Um, the the two major there's there's kind of two major um, interpretations. One is called um, the universal interpretation, um, which kind of goes everyone is the sheep and the goats, and everyone is the last, lesson lost to be served. Super broad, right? Um, and it's it's actually a really like modern. And, and I say modern; it's, it's a very modern theological approach, um, in that uh, it's been only been around for the last two hundred years. <laughs> so, so very modern. Um, but this perspective is pretty simple, and it, and it kind of it rings true to certain parts um, of, of Scripture, right? It's very simple, and it, and it kind of rings true to um, the core tenet of Scripture, which is that God is love. That God is love, um, and it's kind of easy to get behind. Right? Like, it's quite a comfy verse to get behind. Um, Even the, like, the current Pope, like, loves this. He spoke on this, and and he said some, like, really awesome stuff. In 2013, um, talking about this passage, um, he said that the gospel tells us we'll be judged by God on our charity, and on how we have loved our brothers and sisters, especially the weakest and neediest. The time before the last judgment, he said, is a time given by God... Who with mercy and patience wants us to learn to recognize him and the poor and the little ones. Work for good and be vigilant in prayer and in love. How can we disagree with that? that? That is that is awesome stuff. Like that is core theology 101. Like it's awesome stuff. But there's some problems with that interpretation. Like there's, there's a few problems with that interpretation that I think um, would suggest that we need to take a second look at it. Um... In 2001, the World Bank uh, released a series of books. Um, The the first of those was called Voices of the Poor. Um, And it's a series based on this massive study they did, massive sociological study they did, where they went to um, 60 countries, and they interviewed over 60,000 people living in poverty about what 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 they thought the causes were, what it felt like, what what their view of their life was. Um, And they tried to, I guess bring something of a human element to something that was kind of viewed in very dry terms. Um, And it it turns out that when when we talk to people in poverty about poverty, they don't talk about material things. Like 9 out of 10 people, when they're asked what is poverty, if they're in poverty, spend zero time talking about anything tangible, anything physical. They talk about... um, Humiliation and they talk about loss of agency and they talk about all the other factors that are this massive like series of things that has nothing to do with food or their income it's it 's actually quite bad that we come to these conclusions there 's a whole cottage industry um, that has kind of popped up um, to try to teach um, well meaning western NGOs and specifically um, Christians on short-term mission um, mission—we're super bad at it, Um, how to not just go in and try to band-aid solutions. How to not go into um, something where we see, obviously, the root cause here is you don't have drinking water, so we're going to come in and slam a well into the middle of your village, and therefore we have solved your problem. And, And then they leave not knowing the damage that they've caused by addressing a physical problem that has massive societal um, implications. There's a whole industry of advice popping up around that because it's so prevalent that we have taken this thing where we look at it from an outsider's view, we look at it from a a Western, um, relatively wealthy view, and we go, obviously the solution is this. It's almost a frame that um, only we could have come to. That only our view of the world um, could have actually envisioned. That our judgment um, could solely be directly tied to the transfer of wealth from us, the the noble and wealthy sheep, to the last and the least and the lost. It, it's incredibly um, condescending, don't you think? It also doesn't deal with um, the fact that Christ says he'll come and judge the whole earth. Um, And this particular interpretation doesn't actually give um, those who find themselves in that marginalised space any way of engaging with this judgement. He says, no, you're off to the side, you're bit players, these are the important people Who we're going to be talking about in our scripture. Um, Whether you're saved or not. That's a tangent to the story. It's it's kind of a troubling approach. To this particular verse. Um, So I've finished that particular section. Um, We'll move on to the classical interpretive model. In just a minute. (laughs) This is the intermission. Uh, if you need to go get a drink, um, it's gone. All right, are we back? We're back, nice. So the, the, the other model that for about 1800 years, give or take, um, the church or the people of God have, have taken to this is um, called the classical interpretive model. Um, there's, a, there's a few others that kind of get into the weeds, um, but but this is the other major um, interpretive framework that people have applied to this verse. Um, and, and it refers to, um, in most of the literature, it refers to Christians being served by people who are Christian and people who are not Christian. So, so it's, it's, the classical interpretive model is, is more specific. It says, The least of these, my brethren, is people of God. And the sheep and the goats is often everybody, but sometimes just other people. And it's actually, um, it it seems really narrow, right? It seems to undercut um, a whole bunch of the weight that the previous interpretation gives to the good that the church does engage with. It seems to undercut that stuff, but it, it actually pans out quite a lot in Scripture. Um, the least of these, my brethren, is kind of this important line in there. Um, all through Matthew, when Jesus talks about brothers and sisters and brethren, um, he's referring to people who are following him. Um, in uh, Matthew 12, um, there's, there's a section where Jesus' mother and brothers um, are outside, um, and they want to come in and, and talk to him. He's kind of in a packed like building, and someone someone kind of manages to get him the message. They're like, Hey, uh, your mom and your brother, they're like they're, they're out there, they want to come talk to you. And he says to them, This is my mother, these are my brothers. Here they are, but whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, round two, are we? Didn't you and, and there's, also, um, there's also kind of this biblical precedent of, um, of how judgment comes through um, how like, the disciples of Jesus or the followers of Jesus or the people of God are treated. Um, in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out the disciples, um, he tells them, Go proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely you give. Now, don't take any gold or silver or copper or even take your belts with you where you might keep said money if it's given to you. Take no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for the same worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. And if not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words... Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. It mirrors the sheep and the goats almost identically. And not just in the judgment case, in the rewards case. Later, Jesus is talking um, about that trip and he says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, the interpretation seems very slim, but I'd argue that that's because we stamp the word Christian everywhere. We say... Oh, if, if they're less the brethren, then, then they're the Christians. right? But Je- Jesus didn't talk about Christians anywhere. Right? That's, that's not a concept brought to us by Jesus. That's a concept brought to us later by the church as we grew, as we became known. What Jesus talked about was my brethren, those who do the will of my Father, those who disciple themselves to me and follow the path. So that model is actually... Quite broad. Um, when Jesus comes to us, he doesn't come to us um, in his garments as king. He comes to us as the poor. When he came to earth um, to reveal to us um, like his relational um, being, he came to us as the marginalized. He came to us as the poor. He came to us as a humble man. And all through Matthew we're called to join him and become the marginalized. The Jesus on the throne is kind of easy to wrap our head around because it's a caricature. It's Christ the King, alright? And we, we can kind of see the outline of the crown and there's a bit of glory going on. But, but it's, it's not a real man. We, we need a fuller picture of who Jesus is. See, the Jesus on that throne is quite easy to understand, but the Jesus who comes knocking on my door at 7.30 on a Saturday morning um, and needs some help um, and needs some food um, when I'm trying to sleep on that one day when my daughter sleeps in, that's the Jesus who's kind of challenges me a bit more. Or the Jesus who's an unruly neighbor that's the Jesus who challenges me more. Or the Jesus who's that unsavory dude at the bus stop. Or maybe the rich foreigner buying up our houses. That's the Jesus who challenges us. That's the Jesus who tests our prejudices and our mercy and our grace. If Jesus is the marginalizer, are we not called... To not just give our money to some ethereal concept of poverty. Some ethereal concept of the marginalised. Are we not called to open our hearts to the idea of becoming that? If Jesus is to align himself with the last, are we not to align ourselves with the last? When... Um, Matthew was uh, writing this book. He basically collected all of the times when people came to Jesus and said, Hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus was like, yeah, but it's really, really bloody tough. Um, so it's basically this, this gigantic um, brochure for what it is to live a radical life of self-sacrifice and devotion to God. Um, when a teacher of the law uh, wanted to follow him, Jesus said, Yeah, but foxes have dens, um, the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man... Has nowhere to rest his head. And we don't hear any more about that teacher of the law. The teacher of the law came and saw someone else who knew a lot about the law. And he said, Lord, I want to join you. And Jesus said, yeah, oh, great. Let's go be homeless together. And he, we don't hear about him anymore. See, I think most of us, myself included, like the idea of following that Jesus and We think that maybe that means that we have a sponsor kid. Um, But maybe that means risking our kid requiring sponsorship. If Jesus is that king, that glorious king, that glorious judge, then we, when we submit ourselves to that, when we vote for that king... That is what we're opting into. When we vote for that king, we get that judge, and we choose that justice. At the end of um, the letter that um, Pius XI writes, um, there's this like crazy powerful chunk of text. It says, The faithful, by meditating upon these truths, will gain much strength and courage, enabling to form their lives after the true Christian ideal. If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, if all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission, and firm belief to reveal truths into the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things, and cleave to Him alone. He must reign in our bodies and in all of our members, which should serve as instruments for the interior sanctification of our souls, or to use the words of the Apostle Paul as instruments of justice justice unto God. Oh, so, oh, so good. What Pius XI is saying is that if we actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that we can't just take Jesus the man and put him over here, and Jesus the king, and put him over here, and Jesus the judge, and put him over there. We have to submit to a holy God. We have to submit ourselves to his justice, And I believe that when we submit ourselves to that, that saving cross of that righteous God, like we cease to be the sheep and the goats, and we cease to um, be part of that judgment, and we join God in solidarity of bringing his justice. We join him as the people of God, bringing his justice. Um, at the end, uh, somewhere in the middle of Isaiah, um, there's this great chunk where God talks um, about justice. It's an incredible, incredible um, series of verses, um, and I'll finish up with that because most of Isaiah's prophecies are about the ascended God. He saw vision of God that struck him to his core and caused him to cry out "Ah, oh, I'm undone this glorious God but this glorious God also showed him this is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rearguard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed... Then your light will rise in the darkness and your night shall become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Our God, Christ the King, Christ the Man, the reason Scotty... When he goes down the social justice bandwagon can't stop testifying to God the King, God the glorious King. And the reason when I go deep on God the King can't stop banging on about our social justice stuff is because they're the same thing. They're so intimately tied together that they're the same thing. And I pray that as we get more revelation of who God is, that we can't help but get more revelation of His justice. I get the worship.